Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 355, is recorded live January 18th, 2018. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where I can talk like a frog. Joining me this week, we have, who do we have? who the hell do we have? Oh, we have Kevin Ailes. How you do, how you doing today, Kevin? <laughs> well, I, I was doing quite well here, but I'm uh, someone for my equal this evening here. Uh, I'm, I'm getting by. How, how about you, Darren? I'm doing great, and we also have... Dave Tonneman, how how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Evidently, uh, maybe a little better than you might be tonight, Darren. Yes, sounding yes. a little little on the edge there. Yeah, have to have to apologize for missing last week, but I was just starting to come down with it, and I could tell it was going to be a doozy. And actually, I don't think it's nearly as bad as it sounds, but uh, yeah, it, it always seems sounds rough. It sounds <laughs> rough. It sounds so. Ho- hopefully, it doesn't drive everybody away. I'm not making your speakers reverberate. Too much in your vehicle. Maybe, maybe just need to play a couple foghorns, and then the, my voice will sound better. Kind of got that whole James Earl Jones thing going. Yes, maybe Luke, I am your father. Yeah, but here we got a, a little bit of the captain is going to get me through this, and then afterwards I'll do a Nyquil chaser, and we'll be all set. So yeah, we may get this one edited in another two weeks. I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. Uh, well, we have Mac, who you're not hearing. He's having some microphone problems. We have Eric. Um, I thought we saw a few more others in there, but uh, we'll, we'll keep eyes out. And let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. The first article of this week is the first ghost ship of 2018 washes up in Japan. Another ship bearing a unfortunately grim cargo washed up on the shores of western Japan. Police discovered a wooden ship carrying the corpses of several men on the beach of Ishiwaka, prefecture last week see i just i I made that up because however i pronounce it it must be right it's probably ishikawa ishikawa maybe inside the boat they also found a badge of the likeness of north korean leader kim jong uh well i was trying to see if it was ill or two it's hard to tell on the screen but it's it's kim jong il and kim jong sung along with cigarette box with the korean letters officials say last year the 140 so called ghost ships were recorded, officials said, with many of the corpses of their former crew on board. The fish the fish the the ship found was the first in twenty eighteen carrying dead bodies, though eight other vessels have also washed up on the same day a man's body was also found on the same beach about fifteen meters away from the boat. Now now fifteen meters away, wouldn't you just call that the same? I mean That's forty five feet. You know, if it was you know, a thousand fifty meters, maybe, but fifty meters—that's that's the same, they're right there. That's they're right next to each other. Desperate yeah, times. They're just, they're just differentiating. I mean, it's not, yeah. a huge, not a huge difference, but you know. Yeah. Uh, desperate times. It's believed the vessels are coming from North Korea, based on markings and belongings found on the boats. 
as well as a handful of crew have survived. Hunger and desperation are thought to be driving them further out in the choppy seas between North Korean, uh, between the Korean Peninsula and Japan. Generally speaking, the winter oceans in those seas are very rough. The tougher winter brings more shipwrecks. This is according to official from the Japanese Coast Guard. North Korea is more than a thousand kilometers, six hundred miles from Japan, and many of the North Korean boats are drifting into Japanese beaches. Are ill-equipped to travel such vast distances over open seas. Some experts argue surge in ghost ships is tied to new pressure that North Korean government, which may be prompting fishermen to go dangerous distances to haul in their catches. Fish are a vital resource for North Koreans because they're cheapest source of protein, and they can sell to China for cash. Uh, this said uh, Ma Chung Mu a senior researcher at Korea Maritime Institute in South Korea. According to Korea Institute, their international economic policy, North Korean seafood exports to China surged 88% in the first half of 2017 compared to the same six months in 2016. So it looks like we may be seeing more of these. Well, the question is, are these fishermen or are these people just trying to get out of Korea? Well, at first when I saw it, I was thinking that they were just trying to get out of Korea, but they're making it sound like they're pushing them out to sea. But at some point, if you're trying to push them out to sea, don't you kind of look and say, hey, I'm closer to the side where things are nicer? Well, they don't give them maps. <laughs> well, yeah. But, I mean, when they're saying fishermen, though, I mean, is, are there any fishing implements with them? I mean, or are these refugees? I mean, they keep on calling them fishermen, but you'd think, they're talking about cigarettes and pictures of King John Ill there, but I'm not hearing anything about nets or fishing rods. I mean, yeah, it's it's really not clear. Yeah, I don't think they're really fishermen. I think they're people. They just don't want around, so they're we're getting rid of them. Unfortunately, I like the part about you know where they mentioned fish are a vital resource for North Koreans because it's a cheap source of protein, but they're surging their exports to China by 88 percent. And they have hunger issues in North Korea, but yeah. cash is king. Yeah, if you're short on funds, you got to do it some way, I guess. And there's been eight other vessels already in 2018. How many of these boats are? How many? How many fishing boats do they have in North Korea? I mean, if they they lost 104 last year that showed up as ghost ships, how many didn't make it all the way to the beach? Oh, good question. Yeah, pretty morbid question. I'm sure there's going to be a lot at the bottom there were. Or missed the uh, Japanese mainland, or you know, what? I mean, they, they, they cross. They're saying six hundred miles to get there. Doing this in the wintertime—that's harsh. Yeah, I mean, it makes a trip across Lake Michigan look like a easy time. Oh yeah, yeah. And then we have the discovery of a lone zebra mussel has stepped up vigilance in Lake Harriet. A lone mysterious zebra mussel turned up at Lake Harriet last fall. Now resides in a freezer belonging to Minneapolis. Park and Recreations Boards. Deborah Pillager, whose career is dedicated to protecting the city of lakes from aquatic invasive species and other environmental harm, remembers the shudder she felt when she saw the two-and-a-half-inch-long critter discovered September 8th on a discarded submersible sailboat cover. Similar discoveries, more than 100 other Minnesota lakes have been forerunners to dreadful infestations. It was the end of the day, and they brought it into the office, she recalled, it was a depressing Friday. Cleanup volunteers from local scuba clubs found the boat cover along with other trash in shallows just east of Lake Harriet Banshell. A city watercraft inspector chipped over the junk and saw the alarm still re- reverberating. In an interview last week, Bilger said the Division of Parks and Recreation Board will intensify efforts to stop zebra mussels 
under a beefed-up action plan first written seven years ago after Lake Minnetonka became infested. The city will search more often and more extensively for zebra mussels. Crews will also screen the water periodically for microscopic larvae of the mussels. Channels connect Lake Harriet to Lake Calhoun and Lake of the Isles. If zebra mussels took hold in any one of those lakes, public recreation overall ecology of those waters would be greatly devalued. The mussels multiply rapidly by millions and billions, and their sharp shells cut in the feet of waders and swimmers. The striped mollusk upset the food balance on lakes by eating huge amounts of plankton otherwise available for fish to eat. Zebra mussels offer massive amounts of water, but subsequent gains in water clarity can be offset by stinky mats of algae that the mussels are capable of producing. There's no great solution if they get in, Pilger, Pilger said. Keegan Lund, aquatic invasive species specialist for Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, said the findings of a lone zebra mussel in Lake Harriet last year kicked off the largest ever search for mussels in Minnesota for detection purposes. Scuba divers, snorkelers, and water and walkers turned over rocks, inspected aquatic plants, looked at boat hulls, and checked over 200 mooring lines in a lake. They found zilch. If one to guess about it, it's a mystery why we only found one. Chances are good the mussels entered Lake Harriet in some kind of watercraft, even though the city maintains one of the tougher invasive species inspection programs in the state. At Harriet's only public boat launch, an inspector is at place 100% of the time that access is ungated. According to Park Board data, about 3,000 watercraft are inspected annually at the site. Fishing boats compromise 50% of the traffic, while a quarter of the inspectors are on sailboats. Well, it sounds to me like they need to inspect the sailboat covers a little bit better. Well, now what makes me wonder is that, you know, is that something that was maybe in a boat? So they, they worked real hard to uh, wash the outside of the boat and get it inspected, but then the cover somehow fell overboard and had one on it? And they don't mention, was this a live zebra? I mean, it could have been just a zebra mussel that was encrusted on the cover and it was just missed while it was scrubbed. And, you know, they the cover blew off the boat somehow or they dropped it and they found this submerged sailboat cover with a two-and-a-half-inch long Probably a quag and not a zebra being two and a half inch long. Right. And, you know, it. that's what it is. Because if you have one zebra or quagga that's alive, you have more than one. So this is probably just something that was missed. It was already dead. And, I mean, other, they, they would have found some sign of an infestation. I mean, kudos to them for really fighting to keep the invasive species out. I, all they have to do is put a sign up that says no zebras allowed. I mean, to be simple. <laughs> yes. Well, and that, that would only keep out the law-abiding zebras, though. Yeah. The, and the, and uh, the, that's the point. And the literate ones. You know, you're always going to have the scoff laws are going to come around. Yeah. They, you, you know, and as far as missing, though, I mean, when you look at, I mean, they're saying two and a half inches. That, that's just not two and a half centimeters. I mean, that's, that's a pretty damn big, big quagga muscle. Uh, but, you know, it could have been, you know, sitting in, somebody's trailer hitch it could have been sitting anywhere one of the little drain ports on the trailer somewhere in the lower unit i mean you can't possibly visually inspect every single square inch of every single craft coming in and out of that lake well they say it was was found on a sailboat cover it was on the bottom Mm -hmm. so i mean is the inspector looking at the cover that they took off the boat folded up and is laying in the bottom boat. No, they're inspecting the hull in the trailer. But I, I, I don't think that it was alive or there'd be, you'd see signs of 
an infestation. Zebras and quaggas are pretty quick to take care of. Well, and it's possible it could have got dropped in by a bird, you know. I mean, I know, you know, got picked up in a body of water and a bird dropped it in there someplace. I mean, there's all kinds of possibilities how it got in there. I mean, yeah, it is good that they're so vigilant trying to keep them out. But from time to time, if, if you have a neighboring body of water that has them, it's only a matter of time until you get them too. Yeah. And considering how many lakes Minnesota has, it's surprising it's not a bigger problem than it is. Well, we have a treasure hunting scuba diver finds thousands of dollars worth of goods at the bottom of lakes and rivers. Modern day treasure hunters pulled electronics from the depths of rivers and lakes. Scuba diver Dallas Vega 28 found the distinct lack of precious gold and silver coins on his searches. So he said he set his sights on more contemporary booty scouring for iPhones, GoPros, and purses. The Arizona, the Arizonian, has managed to pull over 100 phones and multiple GoPros and cameras from the bottom of rivers he combs, even once finding a gun. But the most treasure hunters choose to keep their finds. Good Samaritan Dallas tries to return electronics to their owners. In one scene, he filmed himself handing back two phones to grateful owners and her friend. The diver recorded himself swimming to the murky water depths and sieving for gold. After finding treasure, he stores it in his pack, takes it to shore to be examined. The footage of Dow shows him finding picturesque spots to dive before swimming to the bottom and searching for lost treasures. Although not all of his finds are high value, many of the items' hauls are cheap sunglasses, diver goggles, and even odd pair of scissors. So he, he he must be in a pretty good body of water to find all that stuff. We don't we don't seem to get all the the good nuggets like that. He probably has a lot of swimmers and canoers. There's a there's a guy I follow on YouTube goes by the name of Aquasugar. He's over in the Maryland area, just north of D.C., and he pretty much does a lot of the same thing. He's also he's mainly a metal victor, but he does a lot of the rivers around there, and he hits the areas that are known swimming holes and canoeing spots. And he he hauls a lot of a uh, lot of phones, sunglasses, wallets, and he also he he tries to find the owners if he can. Seems to be uh, a little more common. There's quite a few people I've found on YouTube that are actually doing this and recording it. Huh. All 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 about finding treasure. Treasure is what treasure is. Yeah. Anything you found you didn't have before? Finding, yeah. I don't mind finding a good stack of sunglasses. <laughs> I've I've yet to find any that haven't been all scratched to hell though. But you got to get them before they bounce around in the river too long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got to get them fresh. Yeah, but the volume of stuff though, I'm kind of wondering why there's so much you know valuable stuff in that area. Just perhaps an area where thieves are dumping their their uh, ill-gotten uh, finds, or it is really odd to find that many phones, wallets, or does he just know, have a real good area in a honey hole? Yeah. Well, I, I kind of agree with Dave. I think it's just the you hit the party spots. Now there is a uh, they've uh, down there in Niles, upstream from our our nice spot. There is a uh, a river where they're doing. They've started doing uh, the kayak and inner tube trips down. So that might be. Uh, oh, that's the honey hole. Yeah, that might be a good one to find out where they put in and just drift down with an inner tube and your dive gear and see what you can find. And Derek in the chat room is – go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was mentioning in the uh, Monday meeting a while back that uh, over in South Haven, they've got a uh, kayak launch that had – I mean, I'm sure there's got to be a pretty good honey hole over there of stuff. I don't know how you know, thoroughly it's used, but I know in the summertime you see quite a few kayaks coming through. But 
it's in the Black River, just up from the uh, where Blue Star goes over it. Uh, it's a quite substantial kayak launch, you know, pretty elaborate. So it's kind of hit you know, the traffic, I'm guessing. Derek in the chat room is commenting, and the one picture is the hammer pulled back on that picture of him with the gun. And in the picture, it, it does kind of look like, yes, and it also looks like he has his finger on the trigger, I think. <laughs> kind of hard to tell in detail, but but there's a, uh, there is a river near me, which shall remain unnamed, that has a canoe livery on it where people rent canoes, kayaks, and they tube. And it's there's it, yeah, it's mainly four to eight foot deep, and I can neither confirm nor deny that it's a good place to go towards the end of the summer and really clean out a lot of uh, the stuff that people that don't normally canoe don't realize that canoes tip over, and they just keep things in their pockets. They let stuff sit in the canoe, and when it tips over, most of them don't float, and it's, <laughs> it's a pretty good place to go to dive a few times a year. Well, the problem with their canoe being so tippy, they're just not having enough beer in it for ballast. Yes, yeah. If you if you had the proper, um, you know, cases of beer in the bottom, it would help. Well, most of them are actually pulling those in an inner tube with a cooler in the middle of it. That way, it stays cool because the inner, the cooler is submerged in the water and it yeah. the ice stay cold longer. Uh-huh. Yeah, but you got You got to have the ballast in the canoe. That, that, that's why they're flipping there. Yeah. Valid point. And and people have said. That this isn't educational. I mean, that right there is life lessons. Yes. Always keep enough beer in the bottom of your canoe to have stability. Yeah, Eric, <laughs> the, Eric's saying take beer that floats. Yeah, I don't know. Captain Morgan's float? Yeah. Yeah, well, it does. If you drink half of it and you put the cap back on, it will float. No. You, you can put the cap back on? Well, if you don't drink it all in one shot, yeah. That's good to see people just out diving and, and you know, Looking out for the ecology and, and yeah. cleaning the, the debris out of the rivers and natural waterways. Now, either that or instead of just looking where there's kayakers and tubers, maybe we need to do what this next guy, where this next guy's been. A man joy rides in Muskegon Lake, watches his truck sink below the ice. A pickup truck sunk below the ice on Muskegon Lake after the driver tried joy riding across the frozen lake on Monday, January 15th. The man attempted to drive a Muskegon Lake from 2nd Street in North Muskegon to Muskegon Conservation Club. This truck didn't quite make it across. It got stuck and ended up sinking below the Muskegon Lake. Unprecedented layer of ice. The man was able to exit the truck and get to shore on his own. He then reported what happened in North Muskegon Fire Department. Authorities say the man who was cold but not injured, the truck was eventually removed Monday night after several hours of work. Eagle Towing came prepared with a scuba suit and plenty of straps to hook up the truck. One strap broke in the process. They needed to cut the ice with a saw before they could pull the truck out. They were able to pull it out around 9 p.m. According to authorities, he could face some tickets in the Department of Natural Resources has been notified. While alcohol has not been indicated as a factor in the incident, there were several beer cans inside the cab, and uh, it is believed that they were quite chilled. His problem is that he had too much beer for ballast. <laughs> yes. Well, no, he just didn't have beer that floated. That's why it stayed in the truck. <laughs> Not enough of it floated away. Well, maybe you should have had more of those Captain Morgan bottles uncapped in there, you know, more flotation in the truck, and then it wouldn't have sunk. Yeah, the ice is not a good place to go joyriding on. Yeah. Been, not even in Muskegon. There's been quite a few vehicles coming out of the ice lately. Yeah. Well, well, Lake Muskegon has got substantial current out there. I mean, I've... 
been out there a couple times, and it's, uh, I, I wouldn't trust the ice out there. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> this guy made a bit. But I mean, taking your truck out there, looking at this picture here, you can see where a fair amount of ice got caught by the axle when they pulled it out. And looking at that, now he's got about five inches of ice on the lake. Of course, I don't, don't know how much of that is good ice and how much crap ice, but, you know, five inches is kind of the minimum where I like to go ice diving. And, you know, taking out your Ford Ranger, well, your, Ford, your insurance doesn't cover that kind of stuff either, buddy, as he's found out. <laughs> yeah, that kind of actually looks like, zooming in on pictures, maybe about an inch and a half to two inches of good ice with uh, about three of brash ice on top and just not a good idea. It's just not a good idea to take vehicles out on the ice. I mean, ice fishermen like to do that, and you know, I got to say, I really don't mind people doing that because you know, it's not bad money to go out there and hook those up for people, but not a good idea to put yourself at risk. And the, the possible environmental concerns of fluids leaking out of the vehicle and just not a good idea. Nah, it's thick enough. Watch me. I bet you I can make it across. Unfortunately... It doesn't sound like he said, here, hold my beer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Well, how about, how about this? Uh, if you got a little cold, you could try this next time. After pool party canceled, northern nudists invite Calgarians to get naked at Edmonton. Edmonton Naturals are extending the official invitations to their counterparts in Calgary who have their naked water slide pool party shut down by the city hall to get naked in Edmonton instead. The Cottontail Corner Club is encouraging naturalists in southern Alberta to take a road trip north this weekend after the city of Calgary canceled a nude swim event due to security concerns. The Edmonton-based club is hosting a nude pool party on Saturday night. Calgary nudists, we have secured another lifeguard for Saturday, so if you'd like to come up to Edmonton for Cottontail's Corner Naturalist Swim, come join us, read the post from the main administrator of the club, John Martins, naturalist Helping naturalists, that's what the community is about. And Sorry, all, man. Once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. No thanks. Well, all, all I can no say thanks. is thank good for digital, thank God for digital uh, fig leaves. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. No, wait, come on. Come on. How is it a security concern? Where are they smuggling weapons? <laughs> <laughs> don't, no, no, don't answer that. <laughs> Maybe grab, grab your ankles and say, ah, you know, I don't know. Well, how, how much plutonium does it take to be dangerous? <laughs> I, I still can't believe the naked water slide party. That just doesn't sound comfortable. <laughs> yeah, make make sure you got plenty of water in that slide. I, I just, and, and it's flushed out regularly, too. You know? well, if you're the, for any floaters. Yeah, if you're the first one, it's not bad. <laughs> crazy Canadians. The all-ages nude swimming event was planned for Sunday at Calgary's Southern Leisure Center. Started making waves last week. A petition calling for the city to cancel the event or or make it adults only had gathered more than 20,000 signatures. By Thursday morning, a petition signaled that the petitions got nearly 6,000 signatures. A flood of online reaction, unspecified threats against the recreational pool prompted a police and city corporate security team to complete a safety review. The event was officially canceled this week. <laughs> now, come on. These people are concerned. They're so concerned about the morality of this, but they're threatening the recreation center. <laughs> There's a balance there that's missing. Oh, goodness. And they've been doing this for almost 30 years, I think it said. 
Yeah, Bold can't fathom why people are so up in arms. Bearing it all in a private event doesn't hurt anyone, he said. People who don't attend, have never attended, have no interest in attending, and have no real reason to make accusations took it upon themselves to start a petition. And that some of the things they were being said were just right out of left field and downright accusatory and hurtful. And when the city of Calgary chose to close the event down, yeah, it was disappointing. While this week's cancellation may have sullied the waters <laughs> for Calgary's Naturalist Club, everything appears to be going swimmingly for birthday suit enthusiasts in Edmonton. I was surprised it began that there was even objection to it. We've been doing several swims in Edmonton over 30 years in some form or another, and they've always been family-friendly events. We've never had an incident. For years, the Cottontail Club has been hosting nude swimming events regularly at Edmonton's Harsey Fitness and Leisure Center. They normally gather in a quiet beach beside the northern Saskatchewan River near Devon, but wanted to, a new way to let it all hang out during Edmonton's frigid winters. <laughs> is, is that possible? I mean, how warm can how warm can northern Saskatchewan be in the summertime? <laughs> all of it's, it's cold enough. I guess it's less exposure, less worth the exposure, perhaps. Um, I I think we may have a show title. Let it all hang out. Yeah. Uh, we want an official invitation to them just to show support for them and the community. Look to swim in the buff this weekend. More information available on the, the club's Facebook page. Well, I wonder how many hits they got off of this article. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to, you know, I got to go visit it now. You know, what's interesting is in the sidebar with that article, there's a comment about a truck plunging through the river ice in McMurray. Was the driver wearing clothes? <laughs> I was getting ready to ask. But, you know, it's um, Cottontail. Why, why is that the name? What? What? I, I was thinking that I'd been to the Cottontail Club at one time or another, but yeah, I don't think it was the same. I don't think it was the same one. No, no. If it was a black tie event, I don't think it was quite the same as this one. No, I don't think it was a black tie event. I think it was outside the gate of a military installation. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, it was. That. It was also. I think it was also a clothing optional facility, but only for the people that worked there. Yeah, the employees. They had. They had the uh, employees. Yeah. Okay. Well, a lot can go ahead. <laughs> I got to object. You're making me blush here. So. I don't know. I'll say let them be. They've been doing it 30 years. There, there hadn't been any problems. Nobody's been arrested, evidently. How is it a safety concern, other than the people that are upset about it being the concern? Yeah. 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 And you obviously gave them their way because they wanted to disrupt, to disrupt the uh, pool party. And, uh, well, they got their way by, by misbehaving. So. Well, the easiest thing would have been to do just as a private party. Don't let anybody know about it. I mean, that's the somebody who it, thought it probably started that way. Well, somebody said, you know, if we put this on Facebook, we'll get even more people in attendance, more than the seven people who showed up last year. And that's probably very true. It's probably not really a high attendance. I mean, you see two people in that entire pool. From what you can see, the pool, uh huh, and the one person appears to be wearing a wetsuit. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there's got to be a third that's in the picture, too. So. Well, that's true. It is a good point. I don't know. I think people should just go back to eating their Tide Pods and leave people alone. Well, I think the objection was due to there being children involved. And wow. 
I don't know what the ages were, and but it, it's not any kind of a, a nudity does not necessarily have a sexual connotation to it. But so I don't. Yeah, I th I think it was in all ages, and so there was when you get people who are in the naturalist lifestyle, they they believe that from the time you're born to the time you die, you shouldn't be wearing. You should have the option of not wearing clothes, and that's where you have people start uh, arguing over it. My my personal opinion is just <laughs> let it all hang out. <laughs> let it all hang out. It doesn't. It doesn't really matter. I mean, we we get we get too worked up over this stuff. I will say that I'm going to have to start reading Canadian news because I'm enjoying some of these other articles. The naloxone kits that may not contain naloxone. <laughs> I'm I'm definitely gonna have to start reading Canadian news. It's it's very friendly. They, they they seem to have much more fun up there. I, I I miss my Canadian friends. Well, they have to have more fun than winters or what? But twice as long as we have to deal with down here, so you have to do something. Well, I I, I think I think it goes from uh, I think uh, it's easier to find summer than winter, which is like June fifteenth through August twelfth, and then everything else is winter. Yeah, and those are just the days it's not snowing. Yes. Yeah, Karen, the, the chat room. I picked a good time to log in. <laughs> I hope you're not st when you first log in because Zek out. Yeah, a lot can go wrong when your professor who does researching by cave diving. Maybe a picture university professor doing research and involves test tube and beakers, perhaps pouring over musty manuscripts in a dimly lit library, or maybe going out in the field to examine a new crop growing techniques or animal breeding methods not related to our last article. Of course, it's good, solid research, and, and I commend them all. Then there's what I do, cave diving, to study biology, ecological coastals, seawater caves, the marine fauna and habitat. My cave diving partner's eye head underground and underwater to explore these unique and challenging ecosystems. Now, we won't read this whole article in detail, but this is kind of an interesting uh, story that goes into this uh, cave diver and... Uh, some of what he does, and, they, and he tends to focus on the risk of it. Uh, the list of what can go wrong in cave diving could fill your event planner, equipment and lighting failures, leaky scuba tanks, broken guidelines, getting lost, cave collapse, dirt up salt, resulting in zero visibility, poisonous gas mixtures. You get the idea. You know, actually, I think he probably is enjoying the risk involved in cave diving. Well, that's a big part of it. Yeah. yeah I mean, you are... I mean, you figure how few people there are compared to the population in general who are scuba divers, and then when you go and factor in cave diving, it is definitely a much smaller section of the pie. And you figure out the ones who should be doing it and actually survive and live through it, then you're even got less still. Yeah, but it's you know, quite popular down there in Florida. I mean, it's amazing how many destinations they have just for cave diving in Florida. Yeah. Well, it's a perfect well, the whole, spot. The whole state's hollow. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a perfect spot for it, and it's beautiful. I mean, I have to say because I haven't done official cave diving, but I've done the cavern diving and gone to some of the spots, just the entry points. And other than the trying to squeeze between two rocks that are about six inches narrower than my circumference, uh, it's beautiful. I mean, you've got some of the clearest water down there, and uh, it's tranquil and. Other than there being a lack of shipwrecks in most cases, uh, it's it's what I like to do when I'm down there. Yeah, but there's well, a lot of. See, are, are you referring to like uh, Von Terre Mine down there in Missouri? You said cavern diving. But I think you're about well, Bonterra. no, no, down in Florida, you, you've got 
caverns. I've done Devil's Den, uh, some of the Crystal uh, River uh, dives where they, they've got them to where they're open or, or mostly open. So it's kind of a cavern or sinkhole type of situation. Uh, what's the other one? Jenny Springs has got some really nice uh, caverns and open spots where you can dive. But there's there's also many spots where you need to be cave certified. So when you get to the little sign with the Grim Reaper, that's the time for most of us to stop and only the certified cave divers to go through. But uh, very beautiful. A lot of people that I wreck dive with also cave dive, and that's their winter getaway so they don't have to deal with the uh, cold water. And I was actually laughing at a couple of them today. I saw pictures of them down in Florida, and their tanks were covered in ice on the surface. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, karma. It is. But as you said, very importantly, like this guy points out, there's a lot that can go wrong. And, you know, when you're in an environment where there's one way in, one way out, you, you really do need to have the correct training Yes. to yeah. to do the types of dives that they're doing. Like everything. Yeah, like with, with any part of diving, you need to have the, the proper training for that. I know that you know, a lot of them kind of look at us being a little bit goofy for wanting to go inside these shipwrecks around here because we have uh, some similar you know, hazards to wreck penetration as cave penetration does, but, but different. But they're different. And, many people and a lot of cave divers don't take that into consideration. They think because I'm a cave diver, it's penultimate level. And a lot of people try to go under ice and utilize cave diving techniques, and they're not applicable. Some are, some aren't. You know, in a cave, you lose a line. The line is only going to be so far from you because your space is delineated. You lose a line under the ice, and you may have, you know, 500 acres of area to look for your missing line to find your exit point. Like everything, training for the kind of diving you're doing. I'll stick to the nasty wrecks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'll take wrecks over caves anytime. Someday, maybe I'll go and do a little bit more cave diving. I love, I love to have an excuse to go down there for the trips. Uh, I just always look at it as you know, everybody I know that dives it says they go down there because of the cold water. But you know, we're doing dives in two hundred, two hundred twenty feet in the Great Lakes, and the water's no warmer than it is this time of the year in under the ice. <laughs> right. Well, you got to look at it. The water down there is never colder than uh, 32 degrees, 28 if you're in salt. Yeah, when it turns solid, when you when it turns solid, you got other problems. And if I'm diving in a cave and the water turns solid, it's my time anyway. Yeah, either that or in your Kurt Vonnegut book. Uh, the world's longest underwater cave has been found in Mexico, and it's not so much it's been found; it's been verified. So if you've been down there diving. Uh, you may have been in one of these caves and just didn't realize you were in the world's l- longest underwater cave, at least to this point, because they keep discovering more and more. The search for the most extreme measurements, biggest, highest, tallest, tends to focus above ground, gazing over mountains and epic canyons. But the latest global peak statistic has come from under the soil in the subterranean depths of Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. They're in a famously porous terrain above which the Mayan civilization once thrived, is now considered to be the planet's longest underwater cave system. It's not technically an underwater, an uncovering of a new wonder, more of a joining of dots. In recent days, divers confirmed what they have been suspected for a while, that the Sistema Sac Actum 
an underwater labyrinth which stretches out for more than 164 miles, and the Dos Hoyos system, shorter but still impressive at 52 miles in length, are one and the same thing connected by a previously unsurveyed channel. Together, this pair of vast limestone world wormholes adds up to 216 miles below the surface space, number which makes their combined size greater than that of the Sistema Oxbelha, also in eastern Mexico, at 168 miles, which is previously thought to be the yardstick for underwater networks. Discovery is a result of years of hard work by Grand Afriero Maya, a project which focuses on the study and preservation of the subterranean waters of the Yucatan. The finding has been described as amazing by Guimaro del Andai, who is both director of Gran Aquifero Maya and the underwater archaeologist. He says the expanded knowledge of the cave system will allow for more greater understanding of the Maya people who thrived in the region before this, uh, the conquests by the Spanish of Central and South America in the 16th century allows for an us to appreciate much more clearly how the rituals, the pilgrimage sites, and ultimately the greater pre-Hispanic settlements that we know emerged. The Maya held cenotes, great sinkholes in the region as high esteem, regarding them as holy sites and portals to communication with the gods. Religious objects and human skeletons have been found at the bottom of some of these sinkholes, including the sacred cenote at the historic city of Chichun Itza leading to theories that they were used by Maya for human sacrifice. One of the Yucatan's peninsula's biggest sinkholes in the Grand Cenote, which is three miles west of the popular tourist town Tullum, this is also part of the Sistema Sac Actun, which has been used as a gateway for diving charters. It's many twists and turns. It's not the first time the watery maze, whose name translate from Spanish and Yucatan Maya's white cave system, has been found to have hidden contours. In 2007, it was revealed that the Sista Nacho Nu, well, now we're getting there, Notch Cheech, previously thought to be separate, was also linked to the Sistema Sac Actun. It's not, however, the longest cave system in the world, which, for those who are wondering, that's the actually the Mammoth Cave in the U.S. Well, size makes it the longest underwater cave, the Mammoth Cave Complex, which is riddled with hundreds of hillsides in southern Kentucky, is thought to extend for 405 miles. You got to wonder, we look at a boat and think, man, I bet that'd look wonderful underwater. Do cave divers think, man, if we could just flood Mammoth Cave? Yes. Just, just, just build some, uh, you know, a couple dams, some dikes around it and uh, fill it up. Sounds like a good plan to me. I would like to be the guy selling these guys line for the reels at 216 <laughs> miles. <laughs> Really is amazing though what they're finding underground and exploring, and you know exploring a network that extends for 164 miles and finding out it's connected to another 52 miles. I, to me, that's just incredible. And thinking about going, you know, if you're going to explore 164 miles underground, that's a lot of diving, even with a scooter. Yes. Well, it's a matter of it's mapping. It's like. You know that everybody down there realizes that they're they're pretty much all connected. You know, if they're not connected, it's because something's collapsed, and it's just a matter of time before it reconnects. So, um, yeah, it just just don't want to be the guy that's there when it collapses. Oh, certainly. Well, that's what I keep thinking about. I can remember going out to Arizona with my family, and they, you know, they, you have those cliff dwelling houses, and and they're all in these arches. 
that are from rock slides or falls. And you think, that happened before. It can happen again. You still, you know, everything up to the point when it falls is fine. Yeah, it's just that people that live out there, they kind of get immune to it. We see that with, you know, places that, that burn every 20 years, and they rebuild the exact same place. Yeah. You know, Mudslides, mud you know, yep. Avalanches, you know, they build right back on the exact same foundations they got swept off from before. Floods, mm-hmm. hurricanes. Yeah, what's that, what's that town down in South down to, uh, South Dakota, Fargo? I mean, why would you even want to build a town there? You know, it's been flooded, it's flooded like every five years. But they, hey, it's the worst flood we've had in well, five years. We're gonna re, we're gonna rebuild in five years. Yeah. You mean kind of like New Orleans? <laughs> yeah. That's about it, yeah. Well, you I start- will say, along with this article, they talk about Tulum. Uh, there's a place down there called Underwater Tulum that uh, hosts a big program called Cave Camp. And they've been exploring that the Sistema Sacrum, I think uh, Steve Lewis is actually down there right now diving in. But I know quite a few people have been down there to Tulum, dove in parts of this system. And from what I'm hearing from, it's just spectacular. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you get the chance to, I mean, he'd be one who I'd love to take some classes from this is Steve Lewis. I mean, there's there's somebody who knows what he's doing when it comes to diving. Most certainly. Interesting stuff, and I like looking at the pictures, and I'll mm-hmm. stick to looking at the pictures of the caves. Yeah. yeah, someday. That's another place I like to go, but, you know, I think the water, in the water is the safest place down there in Mexico right now. Well, it's probably true. Problem is, you come back up and your rental car is gone. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and if you're in the Yucatan uh, Travelers Agency, don't call us and complain. I mean, you're probably Cancun and uh, Riviera Maya is probably the safer parts of the country, but you have to admit that there's a lot of uh, places you do not want to be. If they could just get that cleaned up and organized a little bit, it would be great. I'd like, I'd like them to call and complain. That means they're listening to us. Yes. Come on, go ahead and call and complain. They're, they're one of our five listeners. Yeah. Steve, I, I know I, Steve did I, have I problems with that. Way. With Mexico? Yeah, when he first got down there, uh, he stopped at a grocery store, and when he came back out, his car was still there, but it didn't quite have the contents it had when he parked it. Uh, how much gear did he lose? More or less. More. Uh, he, he, he lost quite a bit of stuff. Oh, gosh. But he'd already, I guess, already made one run to the resort to drop off stuff. I don't think he lost any breathers or anything like that, but wow. he did lose some, I believe it was some photography gear and stuff like that. Yeah, still hurts all the, right. all the same, but yeah, I, when you said it was him, I was just picturing all the rebreathers he travels with. That would that would certainly make a dent in your pocketbook. Pricing or no matter what, though. Well, this next one is Shipwreck Discovery suggests pirates liked booty and books. Dead men tell no tales, but there's new evidence that somebody aboard the pirate Blackbeard's flagship har- harbored books among the booty. In an unusual find, researchers discovered shreds of paper being legible, printed printing that something that uh, somehow survived three centuries underwater in the sunken vessel. After more than a year, the researchers have ranged from as far as Scotland. They managed to identify them as fragments of a book about nautical voyage published in the early 1700s. Conservators of Blackbeard ship to Queen Anne's Revenge found 16 fragments of paper wedged inside the chamber for a breech-loading cabin, 
cannon, with the largest piece being the size of a quarter. The Queen Anne's Revenge had been a French slave ship when Blackbeard captured it in 1717 and renamed it. The vessel aground in Beaufort, which was then the colony of North Carolina in June 1718, volunteers of the Royal Navy killed Blackbeard in the Oracote Inlet in the same year. Tens of thousands of artifacts have been uncovered since the Florida-based research firm Intersol Incorporated located the ship off North Carolina coast in 1996, but few if any are surprised as surprising as the pieces of paper. The fine paper in a 300-year-old shipwreck in warm waters is almost unheard of, said Eric Farrell, conservators of the QAR Conservation Lab in Greenville. Eventually, the conservators determined the words South and Fathom were on the text suggesting a maritime or navigational book, but one word, Hilo, stood out because it was both capitalized and in italics, says Kimberly Kenyon, who also conserved her at the lab. They turned to Jonathan Green, a specialist in history and a printed text at the University of Glasgow, who pointed in the Spanish settlement of Hilo or Hilo in the coast of Peru. Fragments eventually were determined to be from 1712 first edition of the book by Captain Edward Cook, titled Voyage of the Seas and Around the World, performed in the years 1708, 1709, 1710, and 1711. It's possible to say who aboard Blackbeard's ship would have been reading the voyage narrative, narrative of popular, a form popular in England in the 17th and 18th century, which belonged to a pirate or some terrified captive, but the pirates were known to be literate, Kenyon said. For example, Steed Bonnet, the gentleman pirate who joined Blackbeard in 1717, had his own library. It's not known if he bought his books on the Queen Anne's Revenge. The History of Pirates, written in 1724, mentions a journal belonging to Blackbeard that was taken after he was killed. When Blackbeard captured his ship, he was called the Marguerite in December 17th, 1770. Goodness. 1717, the list of items taken from the ship include books, Farrell said. They were literate men. People always assumed pirates were ruffians from the bad backgrounds, and that wasn't always the case. The survival of the paper fragments is perhaps even more unusual than their existence aboard the pirate vessel. In the chamber, which they were found was a separate piece of breech-loading swivel gun that was likely kept in the top deck because it was used as an anti-personnel weapon. Farrell said conservators, conservators don't have the cannon itself, which was likely salvaged and stolen when Keen Anne's Revenge ran aground in the cannon of that period. Wadding materials such as cloth and paper would usually be stuffed behind a cannonball, so it's also possible somebody just tore the book without reading it to use it as firepower. Conservatives had removed the wooden plug from the chamber so they could clean it when they discovered the paper fragment stuffed in there along with pieces of fabric from May 2016. Farrell said the mass was removed easily enough, but prying the fragments from the, from the fabric was more tedious and time-consuming. The combination of fabric and the plug likely protected the paper, which normally would have disintegrated in water. But the ability to read doesn't change the evil character of the pirates who ransacked raped and killed. The fact that they were literate doesn't mean they're not terrible, marauding people, Farrell said. It just adds some nuance. Well, that that was my point. I w- Go ahead. Terrible, marauding people? You mean they weren't like Pirates of the Caribbean movie? <laughs> well, come on. We can't use you know 21st century morals to judge the uh, 16th century activities. Yeah. Yeah. But they, they were just entrepreneurs. I mean, yeah. uh, they were uh, opportunists. Self-employed, yeah. you know, come on. Well, I think they really need to account for where they found the paper. You know, it's like if you find 
something under the corner of my table to keep it from rocking and it's paper, it probably wasn't that important to me. <laughs> so if I ripped well, a p- page out and shoved it into a cannon to use as wadding, unless that was the very last wadding on the boat, that probably wasn't my top possession. Well, you know, I got to say, I have, I did spend quite a few years around the Navy, and I will say sailors do like books with booty. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The, the other title of the show for this week. <laughs> and, it, you know, it is kind of amazing that they found that and they were able to to clean it and get to the point where they were able to read some of the wording on the paper. But for it to be in the chamber of a swivel gun and being conserved, it probably would have had some kind of projectile blocking the access of you know Mother Nature's effects from getting to that paper. Yeah, they said it was kind of ran behind a plug of some sort. So it was, you know, and it sounds like it's not an awful lot of paper either. Talking about the largest piece only being the size of a quarter, and this picture we're seeing over here in the article, I get the uh, impression that is the quarter-sized piece. I, you can understand, looking at that piece, why it was so long. It was so hard to discern a few words off of that. I mean, yeah, you can see, actually, the high-low they're talking about in the article. Yeah. Yeah, you could you can see it in the in the the scrap of paper, uh, and and I could appreciate if I was a researcher, this is goldmine to me because just the ability to be able to track it down is a is an incredible amount of research and effort. So that's great. And, and I would again, the technology I, to just conserve that piece of paper. But yes, yeah, you you gotta think they didn't have the internet back then. You know that the captain and many of the officers and and some of the crew were going to be fairly literate. And what better part of research of where you want to go than to find somebody who's already been there? You know, maybe you could glean well, it something like from it. A, it sounds like this was a book that was produced by Captain Cook about his voyages there. So, I mean, this would be an ideal uh, source, you know, to get, you know to get around these unknown lands. Yeah. So, so certainly, I, I, I would be, you know, I, I would not be surprised to see that particular book on that vessel. Uh, but I'm guessing by the state of which they found it, it had served its useful purpose and was now being uh, redirected in another form. Well, you know, once you've been to Hilo and cleaned out all, all the treasure, yeah, so, he, he don't need to know how to get there anymore. Yeah, he's going, you know what, you were wrong on this this page. We, this is not what was there. Or you were holding back. Now, the book didn't really have a long service life, though, because, you know, this was published in uh, 1712, and they found it in, uh, what, 1770? Well, the, the, the ship wrecked in 1717. So, you know, they, they must not have the book and they didn't keep it around for an awful long time. Yeah. But, you know, good job on the researchers to be able to match it. I mean, you got to think that that was, like, a challenge to find a book with exactly that same wording on that same text in the same position to be able to identify it, but they were able to pull it off. Especially when when it's all handwritten, it's not like they're going to find an exact photocopy of that in the, in the next edition. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Although I'm sure there's you know some educated guesswork going on here as well. There's you know the odds of them being accurate are certainly not 100. percent Well, that's always that's always a probability, but it's interesting article and it's interesting you know if you look at the whole story of the Queen Anne's Revenge and the things that they have recovered from it. And been able to conserve the, the vast amount of cannon, and just it, it it's in an area. It's not very far offshore. If you've ever uh, 
gone diving out of uh, Moorhead City, you, you go right by it as you're heading out to the ocean, and it's uh, it's not in very deep water. It's not very far offshore. It probably was, you know, the vast majority of it, there was only a little bit exposed. And uh, Bobby Purifoy, the captain on the Olympus, out of Olympus Dive Center there in Moorhead, he, he'll tell you the story about when they first found it, and they sent a diver down to validate what they'd found. And he came up, and he said, yeah, I, I just the only thing I see is a bunch of logs that are about six to eight feet long. They're all about the same size, and they're kind of row. <laughs> I guess a couple of the archaeologists <laughs> suited up. Whoa, that sounds like cannon. And they went down, and, huh, funny how these are bronze logs. <laughs> yeah, those, those bronze logs are the best ones. They don't burn well, though. Kind of hard to get that mix up with the, with the logs and cannons with the trunnions and the barrels and all that, but maybe it was a braille dive? I don't know. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it was. As shallow as that is, and, and from the stories I've heard about the work you've done on it, it's it, it's all mixed up. It's what I would call a good dive. I mean, it's all braille. Yeah. Yeah, braille dive where you're touching cannons. I mean, you can't really beat that. Yeah, and it's usually pretty warm water. Well, to kind of follow up on one of our earlier articles, the Cottontail Corner said that they had a fabulous turnout, 132 people, including three people from Calgary who who braved it wow. up there, were, were collect, and they collected two bags of socks, a bag of warm clothing, and $430 for the George Spady Society. I, I'm thinking that you would have got a little bit more. I mean, just the clothes they were taking off should have been able to fill more than that. Uh they said thanks for everybody attending, and we'll see you next swim. It's kind of ironic. Nudity club having a clothing drive. <laughs> you know, you think about it with all the, the all the turnout they had due to the protest. I think they need to write those protesters a thank you letter. Yes, I mean they really did them a huge favor out of that. Now, is that is that a patty course? Clothing optional well, diving could be. I'm guessing that somebody somewhere has written a distinctive specialty on quitting optional diving. I've, I've not heard of one, but I mean, I'm is, sure somebody's at least submitted it. Is, is there is there like a section which talks about shrinkage in cold water? I, I, one would think. I mean, and there would have to be like an identification section. Well, back to the cannons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to have a hard time getting out of my, my mind here, guys. How hard a time? <laughs> maybe, maybe the cannons are a bad lead-in. Yeah, but maybe, yeah. Okay, so uh, did anybody get any dives in this this last week with clothes and probably a dry suit or wetsuit? Well, yeah, of course. So we're, we're Yeah. I've gotten about eight dives in since the new year and a couple days in the swimming pool. Actually, was in a swimming pool in a dry suit, which is uh, not recommended. That gets kind of warm. But had somebody that wanted to do some work with their dry suit, so what the heck. So far this year, everything's been under the ice. Doing any uh, recovery work or just uh, stuff for fun? Um, I've been involved in some recovery jobs. Uh, they were mainly coordination of a search. Um, group that I work with was asked by family and uh, some cohorts to assist in a search and fluently, but we did not actually go down there. We didn't have to. We, 
where we were working with a group that are very proficient with their sonar systems. They just needed to know where to look and what they were looking for. And we were able to coordinate them and get them on target from a distance. All right. cool. Ended up being uh, quite an interesting situation, and there'll be a lot of things coming out about it soon because uh, the gentleman was found on the bottom wearing a PFD. Oh, okay. All right. No, that kind of... Inflatable PFD? Or no. Was it... No. Yeah, that, that shouldn't actually happen then, I would think. Well, a, a Type 3 PFD is typically going to have 15.2 pounds of buoyancy. And with the clothing that he was wearing due to the weather that they were having and the circumstances involving the incident, it probably 15.2 pounds just was not enough buoyancy. Ah, Okay. And he was unable to, it's believed that he had some, uh, he'd suffered some injuries as he was departing the boat. And he was unable to do anything to help himself. And the 15.2 pounds of buoyancy just was not enough buoyancy to counteract the uh, effects of gravity. Ah, okay. All the clothes he was wearing and everything still took him down. Yeah, multiple layers. Uh, They were fishing in a tournament. And Lake Okeechobee had three to five footers. Oh, and yeah. That doesn't work well with a bass boat. No, it doesn't. Not in any boat, really. Not, not diving weather. No, and their weather has not been typical Florida weather this winter. But the good needed and brought back up, and the family had their closure. That's good. But there, there was just a lot of, there, without getting too deep into details, everything's still trying to be, Figured there were just some, uh, we'll just call it command and control issues of the situation. But in the end, things were worked out. He was located. Uh, the other gentleman that was involved was found alive uh, late the evening of the incident. He's, rec- you know, at least physically physically recovered. But he was, you know, just like pounds of buoyancy typically, and it was But I know we've got some dives coming up. I'm I'm sorry, I lost you there. You said you got some dives coming up. Yeah, my internet's kind of spacing at the moment. I'm red. Yeah, but someone's getting kind of digitized here. I'm not sure if it's on my end or yours, but you're kind of breaking up pretty bad. <laughs> I'm sure it's mine. We're still using yeah. uh, Xander yeah. Graham Bell is the one that strung our copper that our internet comes over. Personally, yeah. he he ran the lines. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, see, I, I, I can hear Darren coughing and hacking pretty good, so. <laughs> that means I'm not doing a good job of moving away from the microphone. <laughs> uh, no, my, my last dive was with you, Dave, over there uh, at my club New Year's Eve. Uh, haven't had a chance to get back in since. I'm actually hoping to get out on Sunday. All depends upon ice conditions. You um, should all see. Yeah. Well, looks like uh, Jim had uh, a... It's a, not looking pretty good. Go ahead, Dave. Well, you, you may not get out, but I'm going to leave some pretty good ice out here. We'll, we'll see how it looks on Sunday. Yeah, that, that little warm spell we had didn't help things all that much. I was thinking we were all locked in, and then we had two or three days above uh, 40 degrees, and that kind of counteracts any ice you've been building. And we've got the same thing on the forecast for you. Uh, this was supposed to be coming in Sunday. 
I do know Jim got a dive today. Yeah, I, I saw he just posted on Facebook as we're recording. He's not here. No, he was going to try and be on, but his uh, Discord was acting up. Uh, he said, one hour from the time I hit the water, the truck being back on the beach, most of us, most of the time was cutting an ice path for the truck to follow. And this is on Donnell Lake in Cass County. Truck fell through the ice. What are you thinking? I mean, Muskegon's one thing. That's like a couple hours north. But down here, with as warm as it is, why would you bother putting your truck out in the lake? You just can't walk out there? Yeah. You know, I know some guys talking about putting planes on the ice. I'm like, no, nah, probably not. No. Here, hold my beer. Yes. Yeah, we go along those lines. Uh, I don't know if you can. I, I see that my signals dropped, but uh, Keith uh, Wisconsin runs a, com- a group called Bruce's Legacy. He does missing persons work. Uh, they're doing a fundraiser where they've got a car sitting on a lake and buy into the betting pool to pick the hour and the date that the car is completely submerged. So it's like up. And- I thought that was interesting betting pool. Ah, betting pool. It's uh, for one, have guesses for $20. It's uh, just a fundraiser for Bruce's legacy, and you pick the date and the hour that you think the vehicle is going to fall through the ice and be completely submerged. The first place closest to pays out three, with second at 200 for our third place at 100 and they're just trying to offset the costs of some of the uh, sonar equipment and ROV stuff that they've purchased to uh, assist in the searching that they do. And yeah. the interesting group that has done a lot of work all around the country. Uh, I know they were in Lake Tahoe a couple times this summer, and they've been in, I, I think he's probably around 20, 20 locations this year. Or, I'm sorry, last year. Yeah. And a lot of expensive gear that he uses and just people trying to yeah, I bumped into him over at uh, Kevin. Yeah, I bumped into him over at uh, Ghost a couple of years ago. Uh, pretty impressed with his uh, scans too. Uh, using some, I know he's using higher frequency than what people look for shipwrecks. I want to say he's doing around 800 kilohertz, but it's pretty cool. I mean, you, he would show you scans. You know, you actually could see the person in the scans. I mean, uh, you know, when you're looking at a target that small. You know, those of us playing with sonar know that, uh, you know, a body doesn't show up really good on sonar because the, the body is, you know, like 95% water. But he had scanned, you could definitely could see personally quite well. But back on that uh, fundraiser, if you're the fourth place team, you probably have to pull up the, the vehicle that fell in the water, don't you? <laughs> well, that That's a good question to ask to Matt. Sounds, yeah. I, I just found it to be a really interesting way to raise funds. I, I like it myself. Maybe that's how all the stuff got out there in Lake 16. Yeah. <laughs> that, is, that is very true. But if anybody is interested, I know that he, uh, I know that they will let somebody buy into it from a distance. I uh, just contact him, and he, he told me to send him a check and my date and time picks. Oh, that's going to be an interesting uh, fundraiser. I like it. Yeah, it'll be curious to see how much they end up raising for him and how close people are going to get thin enough to through. 
Uh, Kevin, did you have any diving that went on this weekend? Uh, not this weekend. No, I took my, my last diving was uh, the uh, Muddy New Year. I kind of, you know, had a pretty push slaps at first there. Uh, Dave and I ended up actually buddying up there, and uh, I don't know, I was kind of being a chicken. My, my bailout had free flow on me, and I'm not real keen on doing much ice diving without a bailout. No, so I... I I didn't go more than five feet from the hole. Kind of wanted to know where the hole was with my fins the whole time. Dave was kind of off like a rocket. He kind of wanted to explore and all that, but I was holding him back. Yeah, I'd be in a chicken, but hey, I got out of the hole too. So, in the end, the most important thing is is that you, you end the dive in as good or better condition than you started, and that's the important part. Now, I understand, Dave. You kind of I didn't draw back down in and look around a little. But, but didn't you kind of, like, go for a, an exploratory? Yeah, I, I, I wanted to be the first one in the water earlier. Yeah, yeah. I, I did. I was trying to get the rest of the I was get the rest of the refreeze cleared out of the hole. Just figured to, you know, help out and get the ice cleared out of the hole a little bit quicker. But that's why you wear, you know, PFD in a dry suit. Yeah, I, I remember you weren't real pleased uh, coming up. and It seemed like your voice was a little bit higher, too, so. So the, the ice wasn't... Well, a... it was, but it was just a simple glove change, wipe the head off. Well, cut hole at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Then it had skimmed back over. I do remember Jim saying that they and moved... And that skim won't support weight. Yeah, move the location for some reason. Well, the first place we went out on, Jim out on the ice and we're drilling testicles, and we were not finding any more than two inches of ice. Yeah, two inches of ice is when so all of a sudden... So we to another spot to find your ice. Yeah, it's it's when you drill two inches of ice is, and you look at the guy you're with and you suddenly start spreading apart. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like That's the, that's kind of how it happened. <laughs> the buddy New Year last year, we did a an ice dive, and it was about between two and three inches of ice out there. Ooh. But we were only in, only in four feet of water. That's when we did it at that pond down there. It was a kind of small area. Pond was supposedly full of, full of koi, but I don't think anybody saw any koi out there. Yeah, yeah koi sickles. They were all hibernating. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure we spooked and we weren't exactly, you know, very stealthy over that night. Well, I understand that there's going to be a little bit of getting wet this weekend. There will be. On Saturday, I know Wolf's is hosting a come get wet in the pool party. At uh, St. Joe High School, I think it's eleven o'clock on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody can just call Wolf's tomorrow, talk to Jim, get details. Yep. Um, I, I don't have any details on that, uh, and I'll be driving tomorrow to get there. Uh, there'll be we're going to be doing Discover Diving, first time it's been done in the area for a while. Yeah. My that... understanding is we've got a little more than twenty people signed up, right around twenty Excellent. people signed up right now. Yeah. So if you're if you're interested, you can call the Wolf's Dive Shop. Who is not a sponsor, but Jim's a good friend of the show, and he's been on quite a bit. And uh, from what I understand, uh, is and the shop has the accurate details, but it sounded like it was going to be twenty dollars for a Discover Scuba, which is an introduction into the class, and they get you in the water and let you try the gear and decide if it's something you want to pursue. Any of the money spent, you can then credit back to getting your full certification. And if you contact your local dive shops, dive shops around the country frequently would do similar offers, and that's uh, a good way of, of deciding before you invest in buying all the gear and the fins and the mask. Uh, 
if it's something you want to try. But you're really not going to get a better deal than what you're getting at Wolf's there because it's $20 for Discover Scuba. That's a heck of a bargain. Go and wait for that between $50 and $75 depending yeah. on where you're at. Yeah. And that's a nice pool that the St. Joe has. Uh, my daughter used to swim competitively in that pool, and it's a good spot to go in there and get what? You're not going to get super yep. deep, but uh, you know, you, it's plenty deep enough to go and try some gear and breathe underwater. Yeah. Yep. And, and like I said, pool, I think Jim got some scooter toys coming up, people to play with. Uh, I think we're going to have some other stuff to just try out. That's Discover Two separate events, same time, same pool. Yeah. It really is a pool. I've, I've really enjoyed working with that pool. Yeah, because you got that. Probably the best pool in the region. Yeah, you've got that pool. And you Not the, so far, I've been. Yeah, you got the Bridgman pool and you got the St. Joe pool, and they're both nice pools. But uh, St. Joe's where it's going to be this weekend. Uh, and if you if Dave broke up and you couldn't hear him, they're going to have the event there. Yep, and that's left. And we've just stuff coming up that area, you know, this this summer. Should, hopefully we'll get all 20 of these people interested and have 20 new divers. That'd be great. Love it when we get some more divers, more more people to help us mow the lawn when the summer comes. Hey, I'm not sure if you guys are hearing me at all, but I'm afraid I'm only getting about every third of water. Exactly. Sometimes you get Darren in the water. been going on for a little while here. <laughs> yeah, that's... Yeah, it, it seems we've we've hit the Discord maximum here. It's uh, just a little over an hour into the podcast, so. Well, I know you're probably hearing me break up because I'm in red. Yeah, I'm getting most of what you're saying, so uh, I'm, I'm going to pull ahead and speeds. Nope. Almost dial-up speeds. Yeah. <laughs> oh, someday they'll fix this internet thing. It's just a fad anyway. Hey, it's say, I, never going to catch on. No. I'm getting next to nothing here from you guys, so I'm just going to go ahead and bow out and uh, bid you gentlemen good night. Darren, is it that time? I think we are getting to that time, so if it's that time of the show, here we go. The scuba diver goes to the doctor uh, to resu- review some test results. The doctor says, I have some good news and some bad news for you. Which one you'd like to hear first? The good one, please. I found a diagnosis of your illness, and it means you have two days to live. And what's the bad one? I've been trying to reach you for two days. (laughs) That falls into the bad category. (laughs) That definitely hits the bad category. Yep. So until next time, go out there and get wet. Have a good time doing it. And watch what you're swinging when you're getting wet. All recording has been completed.